Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the Missing Stone podcast. This week, I was excited to speak with Renee Secor, Carnivore Conservation Manager for Project Coyote. Renee is a licensed lawyer and took the chance to explain the importance of using her law background to advocate for compassionate conservation. I had an amazing time talking with Renee, learning how a love of horses led to a career in conservation and the importance of exploring wild spaces. We then explored the work Renee is doing at Project Coyote, promoting wolf reintroduction in the Northeast and working to ban wildlife killing contests. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome back to the Missing Stone podcast, everybody. Today, I am excited to announce that I have Carnivore Conservation Manager for the Project Coyote, Renee Secor, with me. How's it going, Renee? Super good. Thanks for having me, Sean. No worries. So I'd love to just dive right into this one. And when I was looking over some of the notes you sent me, you have a pretty interesting background for how you got into conservation. So what was that first moment or memory that drew you to conservation? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I know I was trying to think back on this, like what was the initial draw and kind of have a funny story because I originally went to school. I mean, I've always been a nature lover and an animal lover, deep animal lover. And I originally went to school for actually equestrian studies. (laughs) So I was going to be a horseback rider. And I think that was just because I had such a deep love for for animals and just wanted to build a life around being around animals. So that actually brought me out to, I grew up in New York. And and when I decided to go for a question study, that brought me out to Montana, to this small liberal arts school called Rocky Mountain College, which despite its name is not in the Rocky Mountains. It's in the Great Plains of Eastern Montana in Billings, Montana. But I quickly realized I didn't want to make horseback riding a profession. I just liked horses. <laughs> But that kind of, I switched my major at that point, and I was jealous of the environmental science and wildlife ecology folks because they got to spend so much time outside and outdoors. So basically, the reason I got drawn into the profession, I think, was just because I wanted to spend a lot of time outdoors. And wildlife ecology program at that college was always using an outdoor classroom. And so getting to like study firsthand the systems in the Yellowstone River ecosystem was kind of what drew me into to kind of conservation field in general. That's awesome. I feel like so many of us have that moment where we switch. For me, it was, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then in middle school, I realized I hated blood and that was not going to work. So it's okay. What's next? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think our, I think that there's a little generational shift happening. I feel like back in the day, our views of professions were so limited but I think just you doing this podcast is great and opening younger people's eyes to like, you don't have to be a doctor, veterinarian, or a lawyer, despite when I got my law degree. But it could be much, it could be even much broader than that and unique. And there's so many different paths that people can take. So I think I also thought, oh, maybe I'll just be a veterinarian because it was like, how can I be near animals? And and that seemed like the natural path, but I don't want to treat sick animals. I just like having pets and so. And you mentioned a backpack trip as one of those moments that really opened your eyes to the outdoors, which I really love because I feel like going into college, I I backpacked a little bit and I saw so many of my friends never backpacked before and would just throw their school bags on their back and come out with us for a night. And suddenly they're lifelong backpackers. And just seeing that bridge, it's such a life-changing experience. Well, for those of us who enjoy it. But I'd love to hear about your experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, like I said, when I saw the amount of time that the environmental studies and science kids were getting to spend outside, I was like, oh, that's definitely what I want to do. But yeah, our, my first year in in the environmental science program, we did a backpacking trip into the Beartooth Mountains, which is a mountain range in kind of south central Montana. And it butts up right next to Yellowstone National Park. And I grew up in New York, so I had zero experience, you know, spent a lot of time outside, but never really had been on a backpacking trip before. So getting to pack our bags with five days worth of food and feel the weight of that, all the equipment, the tent, and then trek off like 15 miles into the backcountry and get to kind of witness the, if you've ever been to the Beartooth Mountains, you know what I'm talking about, but just how majestic it is back there, how quiet, how beautiful the sky is at night. We 
got to climb one of the higher peaks in the range called Lonesome Peak. And yeah, I just remember absolutely falling in love with the state of Montana at that point and getting to spend time outside in wilderness, kind of in solitude. And at that point, we were also reading Aldo Leopold and John Muir and Thoreau. And so I was just kind of enthralled with, I guess, just environmental education in general and falling in love with the landscape. And so, yeah, that that backpacking trip really solidified definitely my love for for the outdoors, also for backpacking, because now I've gone on to spend quite a bit of my time backpacking. I hiked the Colorado Trail, ended up hiking a big section hike of the Appalachian Trail. So yeah, I blame that original professor who took me out there, which was David Strong. He was was the original culprit of me spending way too much time with a pack on my back. (laughs) So before we jump back into your career progression, I'd love to ask, what's that one backpack trip that you think that you've done that you think everyone should have on their bucket list? Oh my goodness, that's so hard. I did. Oh man, that's hard. I, well, obviously I, I love, they okay. I'll give a long trip and then a short trip because if you have a month, I recommend hiking the Colorado trail, but <laughs> not everyone has a month to spend hiking a 500 mile trail. But I think, and I, this comes from someone who did not grow up backpacking. And I think it can seem like such a a big thing to set off to hike 500 miles. But if you put your mind to it, I really believe that anyone can can track that far. So if you have a month, I recommend the Colorado Trail. If you have a week or so, or even less, I did a backpacking trip in Glacier, Glacier National Park in Northwestern Montana. And that's probably my favorite national park in, in the country. I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. And it's less visited than Yellowstone or some of the other national parks. You, When you get on some of those those trails back there, you really don't bump into anybody. So yeah, I would say uh, Glacier National Park has some pretty incredible trails for a three-day, four-day backpacking trip. That's awesome. So you got your start in environmental and conservation in Montana. So what are some of those early projects you're getting to get your hands on? Yeah. So one of the kind of original wildlife ecology projects I did was with a research center at my undergrad university called the Yellowstone River Research Center. And we were doing kind of a biological monitoring project of osprey nesting along the Yellowstone River. So we were doing kind of behavioral observations of osprey looking at kind of diet of these birds and how it varied along different sections of the the river. The Yellowstone River, for folks who are kind of unfamiliar, has really pristine parts that run through from Yellowstone National Park through Paradise Valley, where there's really not a lot of industry or or people. And then through very industrial parts, downtown Billings, where there was a coal-fired power plant and uh, oil refineries. And and the birds nest along this river, regardless of any of that. So we were doing behavioral observations, looking at the diet and how it varied along the river. We were also taking blood samples of the birds to look for heavy metal contamination and found some concentrations of birds that had high levels of heavy metal in their bloodstream, as well as banding and taking banding the the young birds for kind of monitoring purposes. So that was probably the, that was definitely the first project that I participated in and spent way too much time just sitting with a spotting scope watching birds for like eight hours a day. But I absolutely loved it. It It was a lot of fun. That's awesome. I mean, getting to kind of sink your teeth into Yellowstone area to start your research. Is that what inspired your transition towards carnivores in the long run? Yeah, I I do think so. I mean, we're spending a ton of time in and around Yellowstone National Park. And even outside the park, you're encountering grizzly bears and, and different carnivore species. I always had a desire, like always kind of enthralled and amazed by large carnivores, especially growing up in the Northeast where our carnivores were eradicated long before I was brought into this world. So getting to be in an ecosystem that had its full suite of species from the very top to the very bottom felt just really exciting. But also kind of even like when you're backpacking and stuff also adds an added layer of there's mountain lions and bears and all these large carnivore species that come up the top of the food chain. And and kind of that feeling, I really, you know, excited me. So I think I always had a desire to kind of study some of those larger species, but also at that point, kind of was falling in love with more 
kind of advocacy side of things and not just studying them, but advocating for them. Because at the same time, in the state of Montana, which was where I was based at the time, there was also really aggressive anti-wolf campaigns that were going on. And so I think I was having a conservation, like wildlife ecology education, but also a political education at the same time as the threats that these species faced from kind of humans and living in the landscape with humans and, and kind of what they were up against. So Definitely. And you brought up that you shifted over towards uh, advocacy. And I love to ask people because everyone's career trajectory is so different in this field. Mm-hmm. And you went from being drawn into it for that field research side and then went for a law degree. So what is that decision to shift from field research to law? What led to that? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I still try to wrap my head around a little bit. I think I definitely, like I said, I was falling in love with this landscape and these species. And I think as you start to do that, uh, it's almost, it's a little bit of a painful thing, right? Because you start to learn about just the vast threats that face our planet facing, right? And biodiversity collapse, climate change, just all of this environmental issues and problems that we're facing in the 21st century in a human-dominated landscape. So I think as I was going down the field of wildlife conservation and, and kind of field research, I was also having kind of this reckoning of what the planet was up against and what the species I was falling in love with were up against. And so I was really drawn to kind of doing something with this, with the information I was learning and kind of just fell in love with the world of advocacy and, and advocating for these species, mostly out of just a feeling of necessity, right? That if like just felt like I had to do it because it, you know, they required so much advocacy in order to sustain their populations. And so that kind of made me want to move into policy and advocacy and act new laws to protect them fight against terrible policies that were in place. So that's kind of what led me down the path of law school. Also recognizing now, looking back, that there was more than just law school. Like it could, there's also environmental policy programs. There was a lot of varied things that I could have done. But at the time, I think I thought being a lawyer and legally advocating kind of was the only way that I could do it. Super grateful for my law degree. It taught me so much. I have such gratitude for having kind of the depth of knowledge of the legal world, <laughs> but not an active litigator at this time. Like I don't actively practice law, but I am able to kind of consult for Project Coyote's litigation that we are actively involved in, kind of work closely with our attorneys that are in the courtroom, and then do a lot in the policy side, trying to pass new laws and protections for, for wildlife and species across the country. Did you practice law for a time before transitioning to advocacy or was it just straight out of law school you went right into advocacy? And I mean, I took my bar exam and I became a licensed attorney, but I I, I haven't actively practiced. So I still, still can if I <laughs> wanted to, but I'm very much in love with kind of the policy side of things. So. so then in making that decision to become an advocate, what is some of the challenges that you've had to face with kind of having to speak out for species that many people might find controversial or have negative views towards, how has that kind of, how's that been something you've had to navigate in your personal life, I guess, with working on something that's such an emotional issue? Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge question. It's a lot of, I guess I didn't realize before going into this, how much of our work is really focused on dispelling myths and misperceptions that exist about these species and how much public education is a huge part of what we do. These are highly persecuted species that really live in the minds of people much bigger than they actually are, especially our organization, Project Coyote. Our, the coyote is our flagship species and constantly hearing such fear and hatred over that species that really isn't based in fact, but based in myths and misperceptions over what they think that species is versus what it actually is. And so I think that's the biggest challenge is overcoming kind of those educating people kind of on what actually what actually these species do and how they exist in our environment and how they aren't a threat to us and our children. And so I think that's been the biggest 
kind of hurdle <laughs> working here for sure. So when you left law or not left law, but graduated with your law degree and transitioned toward advocacy, was Project Coyote the first stop or did you have other organizations that you worked with first? I interned with a lot of groups, but Project Coyote was my first <laughs> full-time professional job out of law school. But to highlight a few of the other orgs that I worked with, Hudson Riverkeeper here in the Hudson, I'm based in the Hudson Valley in New York. So working on protecting kind of the river and uh, wetlands protections, freshwater protection for communities across the Hudson Valley, a lot of contamination issues and things like that, Clean Water Act violations. So I worked with them, worked quite a bit in Albany on passing new legislation to protect the Hudson River. Before that, I interned with Cascadia Wildlands, which is a group in the Pacific Northwest who did advocacy. Mostly my work there was focused on the marbled merlet, which is an endangered seabird. So again, getting pulled into the bird world <laughs> a lot, osprey, marble merlets. Um, so yeah, worked on a petition with them to the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, where we were calling for them to be listed as endangered at the time. And that's gone back and forth through the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. But yeah, so kind of wide variety of different internship experience and different orgs that I worked with over the years. But Project Coyote was the first kind of full-time position that I moved into. So as we transition to your work with Project Coyote, I first want to highlight a term that you sent me, which is compassionate conservation. I'd love for you to kind of describe what you mean by that term and how it really fits into the goals of your advocacy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's one of my biggest loves for working for this organization, for sure. So I think you could probably tell I consider myself an animal lover, <laughs> as well as somebody who is a wildlife conservationist. And compassionate conservation is really the bridging of the world of conservation with animal welfare. And so we advocate for, for science-based conservation of species, but also for conservation for them just for their intrinsic value and their right to exist. And so as individual animals and part of our kind of multi-species community. So just to give you an example, this really highlights itself with coyotes as our flagship species. A lot of times wildlife agencies and managers will manage species in terms of population. And the coyote is a super interesting one because despite killing, which the stat in this country is half a million coyotes a year across the country, they, their populations still do very well because they have a response mechanism that actually increases reproduction with intense mortality in the population. So what we butt up against when we ask, you know, push for more regulated kind of coyote, decreasing coyote hunting is wildlife agencies will say, well, populations are fine. And so that argument at Project Coyote is not good enough because killing half a million coyotes just because populations are fine is not okay, right? There's also individual animal health and kind of the bigger question of what kind of world do we want to live in and how do we want to engage with species and kind of this community and ecosystem of life. So kind of bridging the world of conservation with animal welfare and advocating for science-based policies, but also ethical-based policies. So that's kind of, yeah, big picture there. And you mentioned, well, one, there response to mortality being to increase their populations. But more so, you mentioned the idea that there is quite a few that 500,000 doesn't necessarily dent their population. Yet, there is still a lot of controversy surrounding a species like the coyote. And you also talked about science-based advocacy of basing everything in scientific research studies that have shown what works and what doesn't. So what is that science that shows that it's going to be better to let these coyote populations coexist with ranchers, with cities, than to actively go out and hunt them? Yeah, definitely. That's a super important question and one that we try to highlight with folks quite a bit. So what we know, what science tells us about indiscriminate killing of, of coyotes, right? When we go out and we are indiscriminately killing coyote packs in, in any given area is that it really disrupts coyotes as pack animals have a pretty delicate social structure. And so when we're killing them, we're disrupting that social structure and actually creating an increase in dispersal and a fracturing of that 
that pack and social structure dynamic that actually causes increases in population, but also can cause increases in conflict, right? Because just to give you an example, in any given area, a rancher might have coyotes on the fringes of their sheep herding operation. And if they're not killing them, coyotes, they can learn to coexist with a given coyote population by having livestock guardian dogs, different non-lethal methods that um, deter predators, deter a predator like a coyote. If they're hunting or killing um, coyotes that live on the fringes of their farm, they're killing um, a coyote that's learned to coexist with their farming operation. And when they do that, they can actually cause new coyotes to disperse and migrate into a given area. And they're at that point, we don't, you know, you could be inviting conflict because you don't know that the next coyote doesn't has learned to coexist with your kind of farming or ranching operation. So it really fractures social structures and can actually cause increases in the instances of conflict that we see. Across. So what are some of those strategies? You mentioned livestock, livestock guarding dogs. And the first episode I did on this podcast was with my friend, Dr. Brian, or not yet, Dr. Brian Shue. He's a PhD candidate. And he does livestock guardian dog research with cheetahs in Africa and has found really interesting results that should work very well. So livestock guardian dogs is one that I've really heard of as a large success. So what are some of those other strategies that you found that do work when deterring coyotes or other carnivores when it comes to ranching Mm -hmm. and livestock? Yeah. So it's super context specific, right? The the West and the East are very different in in landscapes and in predators. So it's really Non-lethal methods are obviously super specific to the region, to the predator that you're encountering, to the specifics of your operation, right? How are, how, you know, is the room to, is it a large operation? Is the room, do you, can you put up electrified fencing, which is a really good method here in the Northeast, or is it your, your cattle or, or sheep are grazing over 500 acres? So electrified fencing isn't a realistic thing. So it's very context specific, but to give you an example, to give you a few examples, electrified fencing, obviously livestock guardian dogs that actively deter predators. There's also range riding for larger operations, which are people actually going out on horseback riding, a horseback or ATVs and ranging with their cattle and deterring predators just by having human presence within their herds. There's a thing called flagry, which is when folks put flags kind of on fencing that actually scares predators away kind of as a new, sorry, my dog is barking in the back. I actually have a livestock guardian breed dog, a great Pyrenees, who despite despite not being an actively active livestock guardian dog, she still barks all the time, <laughs> deterring all sorts of things out there squirrels and hawks. But yeah, so flagery is another one. Fox lights are a method that's kind of people put on top of fence posts, ranchers and farmers that it changes kind of a blinking light that changes its frequency. And so that kind of deters predators as well. So there's a whole slew of methods. But like I said, it's very context specific, depending on the operation and, and where you're located in the country. So when it comes to a lot of these, when it comes to a lot of these methods, to introduce a lot of them can cost quite a bit of money when first implementing them so do you feel that that should then come out of the rancher rancher's pocket or should that come out of a government pocket should that be something that we try to nonprofit fund what's a great way to introduce these methods yeah well there are a lot of federal and state-based programs that help ranchers and and nonprofit programs that help ranchers at getting non-lethal methods on their on their operations in in different states. I know that is true in the Pacific Northwest where they have wolves and and a lot of state-based programs will assist ranchers in deploying livestock guardian dogs and deploying flagry and different things. In terms of this has become a big question in Colorado where wolves are slated to be reintroduced later this year, or actually maybe beginning of, I'm hearing January 2024 now, early January. But it's with how can we prepare ranching communities to start to live with wolves that haven't been there for 100 years. And I do think that that there is some onerous on uh, ranching communities to prepare themselves for the presence of, of species that have a right to exist, right, in North America. They 
were here first, despite our eradication efforts that took them away for 100 years. But I think that it's important for ranchers and farmers and individuals to prepare themselves for the presence of predators. There should be an individual responsibility to do that. But I think that there also should be state and federal programs that assist with kind of some of the financial obstacles that folks can butt up against when trying to protect their livestock in in any given community. And you're working directly with ranchers, but also private landowners, different government officials when you're doing your work. So what are some of the points that you found when you're working one-on-one with these people that help bring them from fear of carnivores to understanding how to live alongside them? Yeah, that that work is super what I found with that work is that it's super important that that actually I'm not the messenger, which is kind of funny, but is ranching and farming communities it's one thing for me to tell somebody hey, get livestock guardian dogs. <laughs> and I actually do, like I said, have one, but I'm not, you know, don't have an operation where I'm I'm, I'm using them as a non-lethal deterrence method. But so what's important when talking to those communities is to have an advocate or a farmer rancher who's actually deploying non-lethal on the ground, who's learned to coexist and who can kind of lead by example and can kind of have those discussions from a place of, having lived there and having done it themselves, because I just find that that's, they hear that so much stronger than coming from someone who doesn't engage with a, with with non-lethal and, and livestock in that way. So I think having an advocate on the ground and somebody in the community who can be that voice within that community is, is the best way to kind of message that and get those to those folks. So now that we've talked a lot about kind of some of the ins and outs of advocacy. I'd love to hear some of the specific projects that you're working on with Project Coyote. Yeah, definitely. So I basically manage and oversee their carnivore conservation program, which encompasses quite a bit of sub programs and campaigns. One of our flagship campaigns is our efforts to ban wildlife killing contests nationwide. And so these, for folks who are unaware, wildlife killing contests are essentially competition and competitions and contests that are held throughout the country where folks actually go out and attempt to kill the most or the largest of any given species and then award prizes and trophies for their killing. So this happens quite frequently with coyotes where folks will go out and actually give a prize for the largest coyote killed or the most number of coyotes killed. So these are pretty egregious events. They're also super ecologically destructive to take coyotes out of a landscape at such an indiscriminate rate for so many of the reasons that we kind of talked about before, including bobcats, foxes, right? These are these events target a whole slew of species, raccoons, crows in some areas, squirrels. So our efforts have been to work to outlaw these nationwide. We've reached success in nine states so far, which is really exciting. We just had a new victory in Oregon where we we're successful in, in petitioning the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife to enact a, a rule to ban wildlife killing contests on public lands across the state. So that happened in November of this year. I think it was November, maybe October. And then we also saw great success in New York this year, my home state right here in New York. We had a bill to ban wildlife killing contests that passed through the Assembly and the Senate. It's now before the governor. So we're hopeful that she'll sign that into law before the end of the year. So that's a big campaign of ours. We're working in numerous other states, as well as at the federal level, to try to see an end to this kind of what we consider the most egregious form of wildlife killing in the country. Um, And so that's kind of almost our step one for wildlife policy reform is seeing an end to killing competitively for prizes and trophies and then and then trying to reform wildlife policy from there. So That's a big campaign of ours. We also work on protecting America's wolves. We have a Protect America's Wolves campaign. So we're really working across the country on, you know, in defense of America's wolves. And this is really spanned basically from coast to coast to highlight some of the work within that program in Montana, where we have active litigation against the state, challenging them for their kind of aggressive and unethical hunting and trapping policies. Um, that have been enacted there over the past several years. Wolves in the Northern Rockies region, 
remain federally delisted. And so the Northern Rocky states of Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming have really seen a large increase in the persecution and hunting and trapping of wolves. So pretty active in the state of Montana with that litigation. Outside of the Northern Rockies, we're actually active here in the Northeast, working to facilitate the recovery of wolves in the region. And that's been a really exciting project for me, just being from the Northeast and kind of getting to partake in advocating for the future kind of return of wolves and how that affects kind of larger protections for canid at large in this region. So that's a lot. <laughs> so I'll give you a little stop there. But those are some kind of the high level highlights of the work that we're kind of actively engaged in. So I'd love to discuss both projects in a little more detail, but let's start with the wildlife killing contests. I'd love to ask, is there anyone doing research on areas that have banned these contests versus areas where these contests are still going on, looking at everything from how they impact the public lands to the private lands? No. So that's a really, that's actually a conversation that we had probably like you're basically in one of our staff meetings. I feel like you're, you've flutes or something in one of our staff meetings, but no, we, we actually have talked about starting to do some of that research, right. To see the different pre and post wildlife killing contests and how ecologically the landscape changes. So, and also monitor that these contests have actually stopped because what we've seen too is that sometimes we enact bans and then they actually go underground, right? And folks are still kind of engaging in these practices, but doing so kind of out of the kind of out of the public's eye. So we're interested in in some of those questions of what the states where we've enacted bans, how practices have changed and how the ecology of systems have changed as well. So open question, but a good one that we're hoping to kind of maybe get either a student or somebody interested in studying. So, And when you look to implement one of these policies in a state, what is the process like to go from picking a state, drafting that policy? Do you try to look for states that already have a state senator or somebody sponsoring something like this? Or do you start from scratch? What's that process look like? Yeah, so it's it's really a whole collection of things. A lot of the things that you just mentioned, right? Sometimes there's a strong state sponsor that just comes out of work and, and says, I want to see these end in my state, which is just an opportunity for us to, to work with them and to initiate kind of pushing that forward. Other times we look at, you know, we have kind of are tracking the contest nationwide. So where are these most active? We know states where there's kind of, you know, more contest being held than other states. So obviously those are higher priorities for us in terms of getting them, them banned. We also look at kind of state-based partners. Is there active state-based partners on the ground? Because they're so crucial to this work. We work nationwide, but when we do do these, push this policy forward, we work super closely with many of our state-based partners that are actually in the Capitol buildings or actually will attend the fishing game meetings and, and push these and get their supporters behind it and make it a priority. So it's kind of a whole slew of of things and that kind of triggered to us that this is a state that we should progress with pushing this policy forward. And then legislatively, obviously, there's states where we know that there's no way that we would get a ban it passed, right? So those states obviously are just off our list because politically speaking, it's not, it wouldn't be successful. So yeah, there's there's a whole kind of power mapping that goes into it to see political opportunities that exist strong state partners, the number of contests in a given state, and kind of a whole bunch of factors. Is there a state where you started to implement this policy and it looked like it wasn't going to pass and ultimately you were successful? And if so, what was the process to shift that from something that looked unsuccessful to being successful? Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example. Well, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of states where we've attempted the regulatory route, which is where we petition the state wildlife agency to enact the ban through kind of their authority and managing wildlife within their state. And there's some states where the wildlife agency has been open to doing that, and there's other states where they don't want to touch it. And so, there to give an example, and this has been such this 
campaign actually predated my time at Project Coyote and, and the Humane Society of the U.S. Their state director, Kelly Peterson, in Oregon was really kind of been working on this for such a long time. But in Oregon, they had tried to get a legislative ban passed for very many years and saw zero success with it. And then they actually did the reverse. So they went to the legislator first, thinking that they could get this passed politically in Oregon. And it just wasn't wasn't being taken up by the Oregon legislator. So they ended up turning to Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, which is who passed the ban earlier this year. And I think with enough grit and focus and garnering public support, she was able to get it through Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. And it was such an amazing feat because it had been stalled for so long. So I think just building and building and building public support for something like this eventually pays off. And it took years, but it just shows you, yeah, with enough focus and determination, you can we can get these enacted in states that we think it's not politically feasible, but it ends up being so. That's awesome. So then your other project, you were you're looking at wolf recovery in the Northeast, and you mentioned hybridized canines. And oh. this is something that really caught my eye because being in Florida for five years, there's a big conversation of does the Florida panther even still exist or is it too hybridized mm-hmm. with the Texas panther? So I'd love to hear this conversation of hybridized canines and how that impacts wolf recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's super cool. (laughs) And I'm obsessed with hybrid canis, but yeah, here in the Northeast, we, our Eastern coyote is is a super hybridized canid and it averages the most recent genetic kind of research on this says it averages about 25% wolf DNA. And so that makes for a really interesting landscape because it's very different than its Western coyote counterpart, right? There's been hybridization of, of wolves and coyotes over many years that's created a canid in the Northeast that's quite a bit larger than its Western counterpart and serving a different ecological role too, right? It's taking on more of a wolf-like role in the landscape, obviously not 100% wolf. And so there's varied, right? But there is studies that show that the higher percentage of wolf DNA in the any in a given animal the more wolf-like role, ecological role it kind of takes on in terms of the habitat that it inhabits and also the prey size that it's taking down, right? More wolf-like canids will take down larger deer uh, canids that are more coyote taking kind of smaller prey. So it's interesting ecologically. It's also interesting politically because it's not these hybridized coyotes don't have legal protection because they're obviously just coyotes, and I don't mean just coyotes, they're very cool coyotes, but legally speaking, they're they're coyotes, right? But it's not afforded them legal protection. And so that's been interesting trying to work with the agencies to realize kind of the value of the existing canid that they have on the ground here in the Northeast because of its hybridization. It also is a difficult thing because we have had dispersing wolves over over the last 20, 30 years. Most recently, there was a wolf killed in central New York in December of 2021. And for the beginning, when we when that canid was first killed, they assumed it was a coyote because our coyotes are so wolf-like. Um, it later was proven to be 99% wolf with DNA testing. But it's interesting because there's a really high likelihood of misidentification of animals by hunters and trappers in the Northeast. Um, and kind of pragmatic way forward is really to protect all canids, regardless of whether it's a coyote or a wolf, because the likelihood of hunters misidentifying them, also the ecological value that our coyotes are bringing to our ecosystems in the Northeast. So it's an interesting landscape and makes for interesting kind of politics on on how we address this issue. But Is this <clears throat> hybridization caused by the increase of habitat fragmentation in the northeast i know on the west we have a lot more a lot more public lands but a lot more private lands that are many acres that can separate canid populations or allow more canids to exist in that area so is it that habitat fragmentation is it the fact that that eastern coyote is more closely related to the wolf what's allowing this hybridization yeah so it so as Eastern wolves were getting kind of killed and pushed out of the landscape over 100 years ago. Coyotes were also 
migrating in and emerging into the landscape. So at that point, there was hybridization that was occurring because intense persecution of both species was kind of causing them to, to breed with one another when you can't find a mate of the same species. You know, there's a tendency of, uh, of canids to breed with canids of other species. Uh, we see this with red wolves and, and coyotes too. There's red wolves in the North Carolina region when um, we see kind of hunting, when we see, because there's not hunting of red wolves, but human cause mortality in red wolves, we see them breeding with coyotes when they can't find a mate of red wolf ancestry, right? So there's the tendency to hybridize in canids in general. Some geneticists actually call coyotes just like canid stupid because there's so much kind of mixing and mingling between species in the genetics of these animals. But yeah, so at that, that, that point, there was hybridization that was happening. I think to go to your other point on habitat fragmentation, the hybridization has allowed coyotes are much more adaptable animal that's able to exist in uh, Central Park and in, in, down in, in Manhattan, right, where wolves could never, right, they they just can't exist in, in those landscapes or not conducive to existing in those landscapes. So I think the hybridization has also been, like you said, because um, of the apt- adaptability of uh, Canis latrans and, and, and kind of hybridizing has has helped them in kind of adapting to just the human dominated landscape of the Northeast. So yeah, a little bit of both of those things. So you're kind of talking about how coyotes are really adaptable to that high density, whereas wolves aren't or high population density of people, whereas wolves aren't nearly as adaptable. So have you seen when it comes to carnivore advocacy, a drastic difference in advocating on the East Coast where we have such high population density versus advocating on the West Coast? Have I seen a difference in terms of interfacing with the public or I'm wondering how? Whether it's interfacing with the public, working with government organizations, just trying to get that advocacy. Do you see areas where there's just a lot more population density, a lot more habitat fragmentation, more difficult advocacy or do you see kind of a lot of similarities in how people react to carnivores across the country? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I think here in the North, in the, let me start with the West, actually. In the West, there's a tendency to, you know, there's large swaths of protected areas where humans aren't, right? Like Yellowstone National Park, there's no humans living within the park, right? So it's a different dynamic in those species have just a large swath of protected land where they're free from persecution, human hunting, trapping. I have all, all other threats and issues, right? But free from kind of that human-dominated landscape. In the Northeast, thinking about wolf recovery is thinking about kind of how the wolf could exist in our mosaic landscape. And there's more than suitable habitat. And there's been study and study that's shown that the Adirondack Park and 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 Baxter State Park in Maine and kind of there's connectivity that um, exists, and obviously we need to work to continue that that that, that those kind of core wildlife corridors exist for for uh, animals to move throughout. But I think out here there's a little bit more of kind of commingling between people and wildlife, right? <laughs> Not such we don't have such large protected areas where um, wildlife can exist outside of our spaces. We we have wildlife that'll be moving within and out of human space quite more frequently. So I think that dynamic is different in the Northeast and learning how to kind of cohabitate is a little more at the forefront just because our landscape is more human dominated than some of the spaces out West. So So the last thing I really wanted to ask you, and this might come a bit out of left field, but I've (laughs) spoken with quite a few people, as I mentioned, Uh, Brian Shu is doing research over in Africa on cheetahs. Uh, I spoke with Denise Peterson, who runs Utah Mountain Lion Conservation, uh, Davis of the Rewilding Institute. So I've spoken with a lot of people in carnivore advocacy, carnivore research. And I love asking, do you see, when we look at uh, areas, especially Africa is a great example where we have people going to safari there and therefore we see carnivore protection in those areas and big cat protection, canid protection, uh, because people are actually paying to go see these species. Do you see Mm -hmm. that when you're advocating, do you see that as a viable way to try to protect uh, some of these species here in the States? Yeah. 
That's a super good question. And one that's on the forefront of my brain right now is we work working to advocate for wolves in, in Montana, and they just came out with their draft wolf management plan and was reading kind of the economic section of that plan, right? And how the kind of ecotourism benefits of wolves and disappointed in how they kind of downplayed the economic benefits of wolves as someone who just traveled back to Montana for the sole reason of going to Yellowstone National Park and seeing wolves, right? And spending my tourism dollars on getting to see large carnivores and also spending quite a bit of time in Yellowstone National Park over the years and knowing that that is such a highlight in people's excitement about going to the park is getting to potentially see grizzlies and wolves, right? Those are kind of two of the high level species and cougars, but cougars are much more difficult to see, right? Wolves and and grizzlies are hanging out in the bottom of Lamar Valley. So yeah, I think that there is immense tourism and ecotourism benefits to, to these species. And that should be kind of at the forefront of advocating for them is also advocating for these benefits. I'm also a big bird watcher, right? And the bird watching world has exploded in the past five years. I feel like everybody I know, maybe that's also just aging, more people become bird watchers too. But yeah, the wildlife photography industry, we just launched our capture coexistence campaign, which is like banding wildlife photography and that industry behind banning wildlife killing contests and talking directly about kind of the ecotourism benefit of of wildlife alive versus dead, right? And just to highlight like one specific study, there was a study done in Yellowstone that kind of compared the value of a bobcat pelt of, you know, the pelt of a bobcat that was trapped versus the value of a bobcat alive in Yellowstone. And I think I'm totally going to flub up these numbers, but it's something like maybe $200 for a pelt. And it was over $250,000 of tourism benefits from folks going and photographing and seeing this bobcat and right. And like, so I think there is such immense ecotourism benefits. We all love interacting and seeing wildlife and engaging in natural spaces. So I think that that does, I think it's a huge benefit that we really should be prioritizing as we kind of move forward. That's awesome. And I mean, the Lamar Valley is absolutely beautiful. I know so many people who try to time that May trip where all the wildlife still oh, push yeah. down into the valley and you mm-hmm. can go in and see absolutely everything. It's such a beautiful area. So yeah. I love to end this podcast with the same four questions to everybody. And so I did send these to you ahead of time, but you can either answer them kind of real quickly, rapid pace, or take your time, whatever you'd like. But the first one is what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? I think that kind of what I touched on before, the public education and like changing people's misperceptions and myths about carnivore species and uh, wildlife in general. So I would say public education, I think, and starting at a young age, we have a keeping it wild youth education program that's working to get to kids when they're when they're young and start to talk about ecosystems and ecology and, and kind of carnivores and the benefits that they bring to our ecosystem. So I would say education, I think, is, yeah. That's, I mean, as somebody in education, I absolutely love to hear that. So then what areas of conservation do you want to see grow? Hmm, these are hard. You totally said <laughs> these before, and now I'm thinking on them on the spot. <laughs> what do I want to see grow? I think I... Not to say I want people to do the same path as me or something, but I think I want to see more field of conservation grow more into the advocacy space and the bridging of those two worlds a little bit more. Because uh, I think with the information we learn about species, we should be using it to the benefit of those species and to the persistence and recovery for those species. So I think just I'd like to see conservation grow into advocacy a little bit more and kind of bridge those two together. So where do you see conservationists falling short in advocacy? Because this is a huge issue, but I'd love to hear your perspective with a lot of researchers are super knowledgeable in their field, but when they turn and try to shift that into policy, shift that into education, there's some sort of barrier there. So where do you see that difficulty coming? Yeah, I think... A lot of researchers shy away from advocacy and no flack to researchers. The reason that they do this is because 
they're kind of viewed as not impartial, right, and biased once they go into the world of advocacy. And so sometimes it can it can hurt their career, which is really unfortunate, right? When they turn their science into advocacy, all of a sudden their research is biased, right? And they're looking at it with clouded judgment and eyes. They're supposed to be researchers are supposed to be very independent and not get into politics and right, but we're all humans and and so I think that that kind of stopping maybe that stigmatization of researchers and allow them to be advocates for these species and not let that kind of dampen their career or affect their career, I think is where kind of we're hitting up against, I guess. That's definitely something that would be amazing if it could shift and change because, yeah, we're seeing a lot of nonprofits that are in advocacy try to shift towards research. So it'd be great to see that research shift and find a middle ground for sure. And so the third question is, what concerns you about the future of conservation? I think that there's so much that concerns me. The biodiversity class, climate change, there's so many. I think there, I think kind of the overwhelming problems that we're facing and the pace that we're, we're facing them. So not being able to keep up with that pace of change, right? Like our process of learning in the field of conservation and making scientific gains seems to not be going as fast as the destruction and degradation of our of our landscape and ecosystem. We've learned so much about wolves in the last five, 10 years that I wish we had 20 years ago. And so it's just a pace at which conservation moves. And I, and I don't think, I'm not sure that there's any changes that could be made there. I mean, maybe more financial support for the field of conservation would help. But yeah, I think just the rate of, of change is is alarming and not being able to keep up with it. So, I definitely agree. I find one of my biggest pet peeves is when you're talking to somebody about climate change and they bring up greenhouse versus ice house and how historically Earth's been hotter for longer and it's yeah. in reality, you're trying to have this discussion of it's the rate of change, the idea that yeah. species can't adapt this quickly, that we're increasing the rate of change and mm-hmm. that that's going to be one of the primary issues. And so, yeah, the, this idea that everything's happening so fast is mm-hmm. a very important point. And so the last one is advice to future conservationists. Oh, Advice to future conservationists. I'm going to be cliche and corny and just say, follow your heart. (laughs) I literally think I said I ended up here weirdly because I loved horses. I just from the very beginning was like, I love animals. And and then I just followed that. Right. And so I think don't be afraid to follow a path, even if it seems so silly, because you don't even know how much flack I got for going to school for horseback riding from (laughs) my community. Right. Like, what are you doing? And then I ended up being a lawyer. So it worked out. So I think just totally follow your gut intuition on, on what you love and try to build a life around it. And I think I think ever you'll do great then. <laughs> well, that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Sean. And thank you so much for hosting this podcast. I think it's great kind of delve into the world of conservation for folks. So I definitely hope we've inspired a future advocate. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Thank you, Sean.